stay hungry, stay foolish. So now on the Innovation Show, it gives me great pleasure to welcome B. Joseph Pine II, co-author of The Experience Economy. Joe is an internationally acclaimed author, speaker, and management advisor to Fortune 500 companies and entrepreneurial startups alike. Joe is author of The Experience Economy, Authenticity, Infinite Possibility, Mass Customization. Welcome to the show, Joe. Thanks, Aidan. I appreciate it. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a really great pleasure to have you on the show. I was thinking about how to introduce you, and we often talk about the quote, skating to where the puck is going, not where it is, the Wayne Gretzky quote. And I was thinking about you, and it's like, Joe not only is skated to where the puck is going, he set up camp there and is waiting for everybody <laughs> waiting for the puck to arrive. <laughs> He's so far ahead of the game. It, it's funny you say that, because I always tell people I'm not a futurist. I don't tell you what's going to happen. I tell you what's already happening, but you don't yet see it. <laughs> That's it, isn't it? People yeah. just don't see what, what's happening. Exactly. And, and today we're going to focus on your brilliant book. And, and I was saying this to you off air. I think this book is like the Bible for anybody in business to experience economy maps out exactly how to think about business in the age of business experience. Well, super. I appreciate you uh, saying that. Absolutely. So we'll get into it, Joe. And, you know, I've watched your YouTube videos. I've read the book several times. And I was thinking a nice way to maybe introduce it would be that great technological piece that you talk about, which is the gumball machine. (laughs) (laughs) That is is one of my favorite examples uh, to start presentation because you really see what's going on. I'll tell people I'm going to talk about this big, super high technology device and let me know if they've ever seen it before. And then I, I show up the gumball wizard, you know, the, which is the gumball machine with the big glass bulb at the top. And then all of the gumballs, when you, when you do them, they go, they go spiraling down clickety clack as they go. You know, and, and there's no functional purpose whatsoever for the device. You don't get a better manufactured good. The gumballs are the same as they always been. You don't get better service. In fact, you could say the service is worse. And I always ask why, and somebody always says, because it takes longer, right? Exactly. It takes longer to get the gumball that you requested, but yet it has more value because of that gumballing experience. And you talk about as well, when a kid does that, oftentimes that they throw the gumball away, they don't even want it. Right, right. They want the experience and they go ask their parents for, you know, another quarter. It's it's really a slot machine for kids. (laughs) It's a great example. And then I'd love to paint a picture for our audience, the difference between commodities, goods, services, and experiences, and the different jumps you talk about. But the, one of the great examples you give is that of the coffee bean. Yeah, and, and it, it's just a perfect illustration, you know, that because that, a coffee bean is a true commodity, and it has a future price. That's how you know. And if you convert that future price to a per cup basis, then coffee as a commodity really only costs two or three cents per cup, right? That's the amount of beans that go into a cup of coffee. But you take those same beans and you you roast them, you grind them, you package them, you put them on a grocery store shelf. And now uh, people, consumers pay 5, 10, 15 cents per cup of coffee. Uh, then you can take those ground beans and actually brew them for a customer in a, in a kiosk, a corner diner, a bodega somewhere. And now you can pay 50 cents to a dollar, dollar and a half for a cup of coffee. You do that in a place that has the ambiance and the theater of a Starbucks. And now all of a sudden people are paying three, four, five dollars for a cup of coffee. And in many places today, you can spend more than ten dollars per cup of coffee, but at the core of which is only two or three cents worth of beans. 
And it's a matter of understanding what business are you really in? Because every industry is like coffee. Every industry has these four distinct levels of value, depending on how you view your business and how you treat your customers. It'd be great, Joe, to give the example of how the different jumps occur. So we start off with commodities, goods, services, and experience, and then transformational experiences. Sure, sure. Because as you pointed out there, that there's a there's a fifth economic offering even beyond experiences, and that's a transformation. And a transformation is when you use experiences as the raw material to guide people to change. You know, in other words, help them achieve their aspirations. That's what a um, uh, fitness centers are about. That's what healthcare, education, management consultants as well. It's all about helping customers achieve the outcomes that they're looking for. And so each of these have very distinct, um, uh, well, very economic distinctions, I'll call them, different ways of looking at them. You know, and the, the primary ones to think about is that uh, commodities are fungible, meaning they are what they are. Goods are tangible, physical, tangible things we touch and feel. Services are intangible, right? You can't touch and feel them in the same way. But experiences for the first time are memorable, right? They're memorable, that, that it's reaching inside of people and creating that memory. And transformations are effectual. In other words, that they actually change the customer on the, on the inside out. They, they, they affect them in some way. Where commodities are natural, things that occur in nature and we pull out of the ground, goods are standardized, done the same thing for everybody, and services are customized, done just for an individual person. Experiences are inherently personal. Right? No two people have the same experience because it's actually our reaction inside of us to the events that are staged outside of us. And transformations are, are individual. You know, we like to say with transformations, the customer is the product. But it doesn't matter what activities you do. It only matters is does the customer change as a result? Do they achieve their aspirations? And that's why they're very individual. And then I mentioned that commodities are stored in bulk, you know, in grain elevators and so forth. The goods are inventoried after production, but services are delivered on demand and experiences are revealed over a duration of time. The time is, in fact, the key distinction between a service and experience. That staging experiences is all about designing time. And then transformations have to be sustained through time. You know, for example, if I go through a, uh, a smoking cessation program, right, I want to be transformed from smoker to non-smoker. And I do that, but then three weeks after the program ends, I light up again. I wasn't really transformed. You have to sustain them through time. And so you can look at your economic offerings and see how well do you match these these, uh, economic distinctions between each one, which I could summarize, too, with the basic function. The economic function of them is commodities are extracted out of the ground. Goods are made or manufactured. Services are delivered, but experiences are staged. Right again, you're you're designing time and staging them uh, uh, as an, an act of theater, and transformations are guided. Again, you have to guide people through. You, you we have an old saying that you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. Right, you can't do the transformation. They have to transform themselves, but you can be their guide and taking them through all the steps the set of experiences that they need in order to be transformed. I'd love to touch on that a bit more, Joe, when we talk about maybe about retail and the hotel experience and that type of thing. And you single out as well in the book, the industries of healthy, wealthy, and wise. And we might touch on that in a little while. But one of the things I thought was fabulous was the founder of Build-A-Bear, which is an experiential retail store, essentially, took heart from a Harvard Business Review article written by you and then went and built this amazing experience. And I'd love to talk about that for an example for our audience. 
Yeah, you know, Build the Bear is an amazing place. You know, it's a it's a multi billion dollar company now. It was founded by Maxine Clark, uh, and in the late '90s, she had this concept for what what I'll call a retail factory, right, where you put the factory in the store to make the the bear and other stuffed animals for the individual child, uh, including having them make choices and being part of that production process. You know, how fluffy do you want to make it, and so forth. And she got rejected and rejected. And, and, and Maxine told me that uh, she read our 1998 Harvard Business Review article, Welcome to the Experience Economy, where, where this, this concept really came to the fore. And she said it did give her heart to continue going, to, to, to go after uh, you know, more investment. And she was able to get it, that investment and build the first Build-A-Bear and now build so many more uh, after that that are engaging kids around the world. Yeah, it's, a, it's an amazing story. And it's, it's an example of what you talk about, like, for example, American Girl as well, like these kind of businesses that mm-hmm. it's not just the product, the product becomes like almost memorabilia to the experience. Right. And I mean, that's, that's when you've got a great retail concept when that's the case that so you engage people and, and entice them in, and then give them a great experience where, where of course, they're going to want to buy the product. And that is the case at American Girl Places, which is owned by Mattel now. Uh, but you know these very high-end dolls that cost over 100 U.S. dollars, and but you go in there and they just engage in all these experiences. You can you can uh, go into a cafe and have you know, pay an admission fee basically for a cafe experience for lunch, for tea, for dinner with your own doll sitting there with its own place setting right next to you. You can. Uh, original stores had a theater where you'd pay over $30 admission fee for a live stage production. Uh, they all have hair salons and, uh, and uh, you know, for, to do your doll's hair as well as photo shoots if we get to put your picture on the cover of American Girl magazine. And the way things are merchandised in there is so engaging. It's almost like being in a museum. You learn so much uh, about it. In fact, it was founded by a school teacher who wanted to teach girls about American history. And so all of the dolls are situated in a various uh, point in time in American history. And it, and so it's very much of an educational experience, not just a, a play experience with them. Uh, Joe, you talk about the idea of the experience thinking and, and the, the three areas you need to really focus on, because th- these are examples, I suppose, we're given. But to give a bit of theory behind this, you talk about marketing, customer experience and digital experiences. Could we touch a bit on that so people get a real grip of the depth you go into in the book? Sure. You know, and one of the things you want to avoid is in name only experiences, you know, where you slap the word experience on something and it's not really a, an experience. So it sets you up for failure uh, because you, you raise expectations and you basically become uh, perceived as inauthentic. Uh, because it's not truly an experience. But there are then uh, what we like to call marketing experiences, and many people use the term experience marketing, um, which is generally how do we make our mailers more dimensional and evoke the senses on our website and so forth. And what we suggest is, is, is reverse that and call them marketing experiences, experiences that do the job of marketing by generating demand for your offerings. And so that's what American Girl Store is. I mean, American Girl is actually a manufacturer. They're not a retailer. They, they got into retail so they could be able to create a place where people could experience the dolls before they buy them. And then the chances you will buy them go up. You see you know, many brands creating these uh, brand lands as marketing experiences, often a mission fee because they're such great experiences, such as the Heineken experience in Amsterdam, uh, Volkswagen's Autostadt in Wolfsburg, Germany, and of course, the uh, Guinness Storehouse in Dublin. 
you know, where, where, where people pay an admission fee to be engaged by the brand to experience it. You know, you're going to have a, a pint of uh, Guinness in the Guinness storehouse, uh, at least one anyway. An excuse in Ireland. <laughs> <laughs> so all of these are ways that in, in engaging people and, and following the base, basic principle that the experience is the marketing today. You know, that the best way to generate demand is create an experience so engaging that customers can't help but pay attention, spend their time with you, and then buy your offering as a result, again, often as memorabilia. There are many then operational experiences where you where you uh, want to turn your operations into an experience. My favorite example there is uh, the Geek Squad, you know, here in the U.S., where uh, they're now owned by uh, Best Buy, the number one computer retailer. But basically, they use theater to be able to engage people in having their their computers uh, installed and repaired. You know, where they show up in white shirts, thin black ties, or clip-ons, just in case they get caught in the printer. Black pants with uh, white socks and and that make the uniform pop. Uh, they carry around their badges, right? These Geek Squad badges, and they'll often greet you by saying something like, "Hi, I'm from the Geek Squad." Slowly step away from the computer, ma'am. <laughs> and they go about giving this engaging experience based off of not just what they do. I mean, anybody can do the what. Anybody can service the computers. But how they go about doing it. And that's what basically you know, theater is about. It's about the how, not just the what. And that. And any company can turn their operations into an engaging experience if they, if they pay attention to the how as well as the what. And then finally, there are the economic experiences. Uh, experiences that truly engage people that are created for that purpose, where the goods and the services are subsumed within that experience, um, and where, and you can think about, you know, the, the experiences have always been around. It's they're not a new economic offering, just newly identified. So we've always had uh, sporting events and and movies, concerts, plays, and 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 so forth. These have always been in the experience business. Theme parks are in the experience business. And one of the ways you know is that they're all that, is that these charge admission. They charge for the time. Again, the most important distinction between experiences and services is time. They charge for the time customers spend with them because that's what customers are valuing. And what we see more and more is that more and more companies are charging for time, even in retail environments, uh, because it sends a signal that this is a place worth experiencing. It gives people the wherewithal. The, the company's aware with all to stage a great experience and to refresh that experience over time. And it really turns it into an economic experience. I love the example you give of Geek Squad because you, you draw this out in the book and you use it to teach the lesson that, for example, the, the owner of Geek Squad at the time didn't talk about interviewing people for the job. They talk about casting them. And this right. this is the experience economy. We talk about it's stagecraft, essentially, and business is theatre. And this, you really bring it home with the example of, of Geek Squad. And you talk about comedy with a straight face. Geek Squad reminded me of that old police squad with Frank Drebin. Do you remember that? <laughs> and it turned into the naked comedy. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that's what, you know, that's, that's sort of what it's modeled after. Dragnet and, and STP and those. And, and yeah, comedy with a straight face is the actual theme of the Geek Squad. They want people to have fun, but they want to do it with that, you know, that police sort of uh, straight face that they have. Brilliant. And, and you mentioned the key, the key thing there, because, again, you talk about theming. And the, verse, the theme versus motif, it'd be great to get a bit of meter on that, Joe. Well, and this is one key area where people can innovate by coming up with new themes. You know, every place is themed, every experience is themed, but it's not always done intentionally. 
And what you need to do, one of the first steps in creating a great experience is understanding what is that theme. It's and it's the it doesn't have to be as in your face as a theme restaurant is. It doesn't have to be fantasy like a theme park. It's simply the organizing principle for the experience. It's how you decide what's in the experience versus what's out of the experience. You know, my my favorite example of theming is uh, Joie de Vivre Hospitality, uh, founded by a then 26-year-old entrepreneur by the name of Chip Conley. And uh, Chip got into the hotel business. He bought this seedy rundown hotel in San Francisco. Didn't have a lot of money to do market research or anything. So he, he glommed onto an industry that did, and that was the magazine industry. And he decided to theme his first hotel, the Phoenix Hotel, after Rolling Stone magazine. You know the the rock bible or the or the bible the, excuse me the baby boomer bible for rock music and that and and he just captured the essence of Rolling Stone. He said, "What is it about?" Well, Rolling Stone magazine is adventurous, hip, funky, irreverent, and young at heart, and that's what he put into his hotel. He didn't have giant guitars like a hard rock cafe. It doesn't say anything having to do with Rolling Stone or rock music. It's simply adventurous, hip, funky, irreverent, and young at heart. And it just gravitates that people who love Rolling Stone love this hotel. Uh, and and that, so it's all done with the theme. And then he bought a second hotel, a third, fourth, and so forth. And they all theme them after different magazines, all to attract different clientele uh, to them. And, and hotels is a key one. You, hotel experience, it's verging on transformational. And it has to be to compete these days. What's interesting is that I see more and more hotels talk about being transformational in the past uh, year or so. You know, there, um, uh, there's actually a, you know, you've heard, may have heard of the, the, the group leading hotels of the world. There's now a group called healing hotels of the world <laughs> that, that you go there actually to heal to your, your, your body, your mind, your spirit. Uh, and there are many others where they can recognize that, um, Many people are looking for a respite from from the the real world in in hotels. They may be using a hotel in order to get a better relationship with their spouse, Uh, maybe to make them well-rested road warriors. All of these are aspirations that people have. And even hotels can think of themselves as in the transformation business by focusing on the outcomes that people are looking for through their estates. And and Joe, while we're on the hotel, I suppose, the casting of people for the roles in hotel now has to be massively important. Yes, it is. And, and any business that's dependent on, on interactions between workers and guests you know, is that way because you know, the original title, we've talked about this, but the original subtitle of the experience economy was work is theater in every business stage. So all of those workers, whenever they're in front of customers, they are acting. Whether they know it or not, whether they do it well or not, they're acting and need to act in a way that engages the audience. So it's very important to direct your workers to act, you know, to give them roles to play and help them characterize those roles on your business stage, whether that's a hotel or retail uh, or any other sort of business. It's a great segue into the world of Walt Disney. I mean, he's a hero of this. He was one of the originators of this. So it'd be great to get your view on him as the kind of the originator of the experience economy. Well, it's, you know, it's really fun that I had the opportunity in December to speak at the Walt Disney Family Museum in San Francisco. So it's not associated with the Walt Disney Company, but it is started by one of his daughters. And they've got all this great um, uh, uh uh, museum items in there and they're able to share them with me so I could create a presentation where it's sort of a normal presentation on the experience kind but every I illustrated every principle with Walt Disney himself 
because I, and I've often said he's the world's premier experience stager in the company today. Still is the world's premier experience stager. He didn't he didn't again start the experience company because because experiences have always been around. But but something distinct happened on on July seventeenth, nineteen fifty five, if I have the date right, when he opened up Disneyland. And it was a matter of he just understood all the principles. He understood theming. You know, there was between a theme park and an amusement park. He understood acting and theater. Why why all of the employees are called cast members because they know that they're on stage. Why they have signs in the parks uh, before they go from off stage to on stage. There's a sign that says you are now on stage to remind them uh, what they're doing. They you know it it hits the sweet spot of the experience that we talk about between. Um, entertainment, educational escapist, and aesthetic experiences. You know, so everything that we talk about, basically, you know, Walt Disney was doing it there first. And and people often use this pejorative term, Disneyfication. You know, when things are being Disneyfied, I, I, I take that as a badge of honor to say that you can follow Walt Disney and, and create experiences as well as he can. That's a wonderful way to think about what Disneyfication really is. And, and from a leader perspective in a company, so lots of CEOs and leaders listen to this show, what can they be doing to bring this to their business? I mean, they, they need to almost change the language they use. And you give a whole new lexicon in the book as well. Could we get, get a bit of a, like, for example, you know, shopper escapism and shoppertainment and this, this new language can't you can't be afraid of it you've got to embrace it because the, the whole the paradigm has changed right vocabulary is hugely important you basically can only change culture by changing the vocabulary because that changes the way people think so so leaders have to work in particular on the mindset of the organization they have to decide and then promulgate what business are we really in and get everybody to fully understand what that means they do have to work on on theming and on acting. Understand they got to prepare your people uh, to act. They have to have the guts to be able to say, okay, look at how can we charge admission for our experience? How can we not just give it away like most companies do? You know, even a Starbucks, they give away the experience to better sell the coffee that they have there. But how do we figure out how to actually charge admission for the experience? Um, as for example, in the UK, Zifferblatt Cafes is doing. You know, Ziffer Block Cafes is one that's a chain of about eight or ten now. I first uh, experienced it in London, where you don't pay for the coffee. The coffee is free. It's subsumed in the experience of being in the cafe, for which they charge about eight pence per minute. Right, So you just go in, and they clock your time. You spend as long as you want, drink as much as you want. But when you're done, you pay for the time that you spend there. You know, it's t- it takes leaders, uh, the guts of leaders to be able to, to do that sort of thing and recognize that eventually we simply have to align what we charge for with what our customers value, the time they spend with us. From some other examples from different industries, like you talk about bookstores, for example, and Barnes & Noble really treating the experience like a theater. Yeah, yeah. And they, they just haven't done anything since then. But, you know, they, they were one of the first retailers to put a Starbucks inside of them. Because the easiest way to get in the experience business is at a cafe because it naturally engages all five senses. They did recognize that, uh, the, you know, that they were a stage for the books, but they basically haven't done much of anything different in the last you know, 15 years since, they, since they've done that. Um, but there are, there are many examples we can learn from you know, many different industries. There's even B2B experiences out there. You know, my favorite B2B experience is the Case Tomahawk Experience Center. Uh, in the Northwoods of Wisconsin here in the U.S., where Case Construction created a place where people can come and play with the equipment. 
you know, again, the principal get them to to play with with the goods before they buy them. And the chances they they will buy them go up. So they have spend hours, even a couple of days up there, uh, you know, where it's basically a giant sandbox, and they have rodeos and contests who can move the most amount of dirt in the shortest amount of time. And Case did a, a survey a number of years ago that said if a, if a potential customer goes up to a dealer, they have perhaps a 20% chance of getting their business. If they can bring them up to Tomahawk, it goes up to 80%. And from 20% to 80%, because again, the experience is the marketing. And you know, you know, any industry, there's always an example of somebody who's figured out how can we create a great uh, experience in there. I think it was Benjamin Franklin said, the taste of the roast is determined by the handshake of the host. It's that whole <laughs> holistic. Oh, yeah, you know, in fact, there's research that shows that that's true. You know, that how how it's not just the actual taste, but the entire environment affects the, the taste of things. So and restaurants really need to think about the, the experience that they create in there. And, and people will find that the food actually tastes better as a result. You know, I, I might move on to stuff like, for example, Las Vegas, for example. Las Vegas, you give, is it kind of the mecca of experience economy? It is. It's, you know, it's the epicenter, we always call it, of the experience economy. And everything that's happening in Las Vegas is eventually coming to your town. You know, witness the gumball wizard again. You know, that Vegas has slot machines. Everywhere else has gumball wizards. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the, you know, Cirque du Soleil shows. That, you know, originally it was pure escapist experience of all about the gaming. But they began to, and they gave away food and shows for free. Now Vegas actually makes more revenue, not more profit, but more revenue off of restaurants and off of shows and off of the hotels than they do off of the gaming that's there. Because it's all wrapped up into this wonderful, amazing sensory experience. Taking some examples from there. So you, you talk about experience realms, for example. It would be great to get a bit of a, a nuggets on that world. Sure. Well, there are basically four realms of the experience, you know, depending on whether it's a passive or an active experience, depending on whether you're absorbing the experience into you or you're immersing yourself into the experience. And, and so you have entertainment experiences where you're passively absorbing in the sights and sounds that are presented to you. If you get active in there, become actively involved is when you can actually learn from those experiences and have an educational experience. If you actively are immersed in, in a place, going from one place to another, uh, then you have an escapist experience. And then finally, you, if you're passively immersed, you have an aesthetic experience. You know, that's like going and sitting in a Starbucks. You're passively immersed in the environment or a museum, a gal art gallery, and so forth. And, and, and so what we found is that the best experiences, the most robust experiences, are in fact those that hit the sweet spot in the middle that have aspects of all four of those, that, that, that all at the same time, they are entertaining and educational, they're escapist and, and aesthetic. And that's another thing that leaders need to do is to see how do we add elements of each one of these realms of experience into how we interact with, with our customers. Yeah, and, and you do give this, all this framework is, is in the book and, of course, with your own company, Strategic Horizons. But I, I'd love to talk about a little bit about technology, Joe, because, you know, when I was, when I was reading the book first, I, w I felt the experience economy, why now? And then I was like, is it because our needs, our basic needs are met more than ever before? Are we sick of stuff? Do we not want stuff in our lives anymore? What What is it? In your view, what is it? Well, there's both supply and demand factors. Um, on the supply side, that business competition always gets tougher year after year. 
And companies have to be in a constant state, uh, a search for differentiation, or they'll be commoditized. And so to avoid that commoditization, looking for how can we add more value, and as goods and services commoditize, the next step is simply to shift into experiences. We add more value to our customers. We get closer to what they want through experiences and then eventually into uh, transformations. On the demand side, you know, yeah, there, there is this aspect of we do have enough stuff. We don't need more stuff. We, in fact, want goods and services to be commoditized so we can spend our hard-earned money and our harder-earned time on the experiences that we savor. And in fact, research shows that when you buy experiences over buying things, that in fact, it makes people happier as a result. So there's a whole you know, host of things wrapped in there about why we have effectively shifted into today's experience economy. And, and that probably explains stuff like why we feel like there's just constant holidays on. I mean, Halloween, for example, <laughs> yeah. has become like Christmas over here, for example, in Europe. I don't know what it's like in the States. Yeah, very similar. <laughs> very similar. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a huge, big production. And there's a lot of places that realize that, you know, like we have like Renaissance uh, fairs, Renaissance festivals that run in the summer. Well, they recognize that they could they could open again at Christmas, even though even if it's cold outside, they can open again at Halloween. They can add all of these different uh, things to them and extend their operating season. And b- birthday parties, for example, you you use this as an example as well, where birthday parties you you bake right. a cake versus actually outsourcing that and, and paying for the service of having a party. Yeah, it's another one where it's very easy to see this progression of economic value because the core of the birthday party is the birthday cake, which is made from commodities and it costs only 20 or 30 cents worth of stuff. But along came manufacturers like Betty Crocker and Duncan Hines that take that same stuff and package it, put it in a grocery store shelf. And now we can bake a cake for two or three dollars for the, the cake mix or two or three US dollars for the, the icing. Uh, and, and, but so time starved have we become that often we don't bake the cake at all. We we call up the corner bakery or the grocery store when we ask them to to perform the service of baking that cake for us. And now we're spending $10, $20, $30. You know, each of these an order of magnitude more value. And of course, as we become so time starved, not only do we have time to bake the cake, we don't have, always have time to throw the party anymore. So we outsource it by going to uh, you know, some amusement place, to a museum, even to a McDonald's playland. Uh, and other places where we get people to stage the birthday party experience for our kids. And that often will cost us a hundred or more dollars, you know, another order of magnitude, more value from the birthday party experience. And while we have that, Joe, and people, a mental picture of that in our minds, if it can mentally overlay the jumps you talk about, from commodities to goods to services to experiences to transformational experiences, Mm -hmm. what kind of jumps in revenue uh, potential are you seeing in those jumps? It is very dependent on the industry. Um, but often, you know, like in coffee and in birthday parties, you're seeing several orders of magnitude more from the experiences versus the core commodity that's there. Um, but it depends on, on you know, how you create that experience, how you, how you, um, you know, what you're able to charge for it and that. But that's, you know, that, that's very common to see, you know, several orders of magnitude, more value from the experiences versus the commodities. Okay. So it's all, it's all industry dependent. And I suppose, you know, one of the things we, we talked about realms there, we talk about escapism, et cetera. One of the things you talk about is how the internet has actually commoditized so many products as well. Like for example, price comparison sites can commoditize it 
But how can we use the internet to our advantage in the experience economy? Well, yeah, I mean, it is the greatest force of commoditization ever invented. But the reason people originally got onto the internet is, in fact, for the experiences. It's not to buy stuff. And so you see the rise, you know, certainly of social media firms that, that we go on social media for the experience. We, we, we use Instagram now to document our experiences, that, that we want to have uh, Instagrammable experiences that we can take a picture of and then put them, them out there. Uh, but of course, then the internet gives rise to the ability to play games. You know, one of the first companies that were really able to charge admission on the internet were gaming companies. And now gaming companies are multi-billion dollar industries. There's this whole thing about esports where now people are paying admission to, um, to a, a, a basically an internet site to be able to watch people play video games <laughs> and have this great experience. You actually have this vicarious entertainment experience of watching people have the escapist experience of playing video games. And that itself is a multi-billion dollar industry. There's now teams that are forming to, to create sports teams uh, in various different cities to play uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, video games. Uh, so it's an amazing thing. That's what we can really use. And even when we interact with customers on our websites, we need to think about it's not just about how do we merchandise and, and that, but it's how do we engage them? How do we get them to want to spend their time with me on my website? Same with contact centers. You know, is, is that, that also is theater. How do we get people to be engaged by talking to people over the phone or via chat and, and uh, over the phone on, on the uh, over vo uh, you know, voice over IP on the Internet? Just to move on to you, you, you talk about three areas, healthy, wealthy and wise. And just, you know, briefly touching on them. One, one is health because you see health as the opportunity to be a real transformational experience. Yeah, and you know, that also is a Ben Franklin phrase, since you mentioned him earlier, is, is uh, healthy, wealthy, and wise. And all of those are transformational industries, that being healthy. Uh, healthcare is fundamentally about transformations. People want to go from sick to well. And in fact, I probably do more work in healthcare than any other industry because of the simple fact that research shows that the better the patient experience, the better the outcome. And, and that's the key with healthcare. It's about outcomes. Because again, here, the patient is the product. The question, it doesn't matter about the inputs. It doesn't matter what you do as a, as a healthcare professional. The question is, does the patient get the outcomes that they want? And that's to become healthy again. And of course, you can talk about well, and you're maintaining that health through wellness and, and all that sort of thing. But healthcare is one of those industries that really is about transformation. And, and being wealthy is as well. You know, we call it financial services. But in fact, we need to recognize that in financial services, that industry, uh, money is a means to an end, and at least for most people, not all, but for most people, money is a means to an end. And what is the end to which they want to use their money? That's the outcome. And how can you help them actually achieve that outcome? Whether it is to retire well or to uh, send their kids to college or to be able to afford a vacation every year or even go out to dinner once a week. You know, whatever it is, how do you help them meet their financial goals, the outcomes that they want, rather than just handle the means, you know, the money? And so healthy, wealthy, and then wise. You know, wise, I mean, ed education is one of the four realms of experience, but it's the one most readily uh, uh, leads into transformation because, again, people want to use that education to change their lives in some way. I'll mention that... Um, um, the uh, when John Quelch was the dean of the London Business School, 
You know, he read our book, he took to this notion of transformations, and he once told Fast Company Magazine that we're not in the education business, we're in the transformation business. That we expect everyone who participates in the program at the London Business School, whether it is for three days or for two years, to be transformed by the experience. Right? That's a different mindset. That's a that's a different economic offering. It's a different way of thinking. It's a transformation rather than a mere service or even experience. Brilliant. And, and you know, when you're when you're on education as well, you talk about this from a customer perspective as well, not just the industry of education, but you talk about educating the customer as part of your service, no matter what business you're in. Right. And that could be a key thing because the you, you can always help them learn. They'll always gain value from that. You can teach them to become a better customer. I once worked, in fact, with one of the casino operators in Las Vegas, and I tried to get them to really stress that, you know, like beginner's tables and to actually teach people how to gamble. And have classes and teach them how to gamble, you know, and and, and be, because a lot of people are just too nervous. They're, they're too worried about making a fool of themselves, about making poor bets and that sort of thing. But if you teach them to become a gambler, right, which is a transformation, then they'll gamble more. And the more they gamble, the next real house advantage says that you will gain value from them being better uh, uh, gamblers and, and spending more time and money uh, at the table and having having more of a engaging experience as well when you talk about cultivating the learning experience that's what you're talking about there there's also though i talk about a learning relationship which is a slightly different thing um which is around better customizing individuals you know you you mentioned up front that my in one of my books was mass customizations in fact my first book came out in 1993 so it's actually 25 years old now and, and that's how I discovered this progression of economic value because I realized that mass customizing a good turns into a service and customizing a service turns into an experience and experience into a transformation. So, so it really is key because it gets more and more individual. It gets more and more exactly what people want and helps individualize the offerings that, that you have. Uh, and so I talk there about the, the best thing you want is to create a learning relationship that, that grows and deepens over time. And um, uh, that's where every interaction is an opportunity to learn. And the more you learn, the better you're able to customize this individual living, breathing customer. The more you customize, the more they're going to benefit. And the more they benefit, the more, more they're going to interact with you again. And every interaction is an opportunity to learn. So you get this, this virtuous cycle that basically puts the customer at the center of, of this learning relationship so that they always will want to come, come back to you when they're in the market for what you provide. And a great example of that is uh, my partner, uh, Jim Gilmore, and I, for the past 20 years, have given out an Experience Stager of the Year Award winner. And in 2017, we gave out the, this XP Award, Experience Stager of the Year Award, uh, to the Carnival Corporation because they're, they are cultivating these learning relationships now with individual guests of the cruise. They've created this ocean medallion, which is an IoT device that they give to guests before they arrive. Uh, and allows them to identify who they are. They ask them for their preferences so they can then begin to morph the ship around them. They, your crew members have this tablet that pops up whenever guest comes, comes up to them, pops up with their name and their picture. They can greet them by name. They can know what they want. They can create this personal experience itinerary uh, for each one of them. And it really does take the experience to another level when you gear it around what they're individually looking for, you know, each guest, each family unit, each each group uh, on, on a cruise. 
So the more they use your product, the better it gets, essentially. And then they become more hooked because the product's better and better. And because that's so relevant, I suppose, to this show, because so many founders listen to it and they can take an example of that and bring it back to their business. Right. And that's what they should do is they should think about how do they modularize their product in a way that allows them to put it together differently for different customers, you know, like Lego bricks. Uh, And then once you're able to do that, whether it's a good, a service or an experience, then uh, you can better meet individual need. You can do it with low cost and you can shift up to turn your goods into services, your services into experiences, and even your experiences into transformations. Brilliant, Joe. And you mentioned like one of the ones I thought was brilliant was you like, you say, for example, build a bear. And then you look at a different industry and you go, well, why can't the automotive industry right. be like Build-A-Bear? Right. And Tesla more is more like Build-A-Bear. <laughs> you know, it's the one you could point to here in the U.S. where you can go in and design your own car. You can play with it. You can touch and feel uh, the, and see the different one just like you can in, in a Build-A-Bear. And, of course, they're tremendously successful at that. For leaders looking at innovation is one of the key things is to, is to not practice best practices which is copying what other people are doing, but instead to embrace best principles, which is looking at the principles that other people are applying to their business, extract out the principles and then apply them to yours. And that's what you can do with a Build-A-Bear or with a Geek Squad or even a Starbucks is what are the principles that are applied to their business? Now, how do I apply those same principles to mine? And you'll be able to innovate new uh, uh, offerings as a result. It takes a disruptor from an industry out a totally different industry like Elon Musk to come and reinvent and and, and disrupt an industry. Right. What what are the key ingredients you see to leaders that are successful at that? Well, one is is you do have to have a focus on innovation. That innovation is key. That you have to, in fact, um, think about how do I innovate faster than my ecosystem. Because if I don't do that, eventually I'm going to get swamped. Eventually I'm going to get disrupted. But I have to innovate faster than everybody else out there in total in order to, uh, to um, you know, basically thrive forever, as my colleague Kim Korn talks about it. And, um, and so in particular, I need to focus on innovating in experiences. We so often think of innovation only in terms of manufactured goods and, and, and even rarely in terms of services. But we need to think in terms of experience innovation. You know, that hit home for me a number of years ago when I was in Milan, Italy, and doing this boardroom presentation where um, one of the people was the vice president of a coffee manufacturer in Europe. And he said that, you know, there's been no innovation in our industry in 15 years. And I said, are you kidding me? Have you never heard of Starbucks? Because <laughs> he was a manufacturer. He only thought of innovation in terms of goods, totally missing the innovation in the coffee drinking experience. That, in fact, Howard Schultz created by, by being inspired by the coffee culture he saw in Milan, Italy. So you have to be open to innovating, not just in what you think your industry is, not just in what you think your business is, but go beyond goods and services to innovate in experiences and even in transformations. What about the culture? Does the culture need to change in companies to embrace innovation? Well, if the culture does not embrace innovation today, then yes, it absolutely has to change. It has to be open. It has to be um, open to failure as well, because not innovations are going to work. You can't just uh, fire people and castigate them, and uh, you know because something uh, failed, you have to learn from those failures. You know, do a postmortem, and uh, and then use that to feed into what you're going to 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 do in the future. Those companies you've seen succeed with strategic horizons with your business. What, what, what are the ingredients of those companies? 
Well, one is I see more and more where companies are creating the position of chief experience officer, you know, CXO as opposed to CEO, but chief experience officer to really focus on innovation and experiences to drive home the, the, on the inside, the, the need for culture change to, to think about experiences as well as on the outside to entice customers who want to be a part of that process and, and to embrace the experiences that are, that are being created. You know, so, for example, uh, Carnival Corporation created the, the, the dual position, actually, of chief experience and innovation officer, right? John Padgett is their CXIO, uh, and he came out of Disney, worked on the Disney Magic Band there, and then took what he learned and, and created a whole new uh, experience offering for Carnival. And, uh, and one of the ways he did that is he created this Experience Innovation Center, uh, EIC or XIC, I think he called it, Experience Innovation Center, uh, in Doral, Florida, where he prototyped everything. And he, he was constantly changing generations. It was like, even though we're talking about physical things here, it was more like a Silicon Valley startup where you're constantly moving fast and breaking things and, and trying things out and prototyping and then seeing what works and then continuing on, keeping the executives in the loop the whole time by allowing them to come and be able to experience it for, uh, for themselves. So think about, you know, that you also need an experience innovation center and how you can create that to um, develop new offerings. Brilliant, Joe. Well, and, and where can people get in touch? Because I know you work with a lot of Fortune 500 companies and you work globally with companies that embrace innovation and different thinking. Well, yes, you can reach us at our, our website, which is strategichorizons.com. Right? Strategic Horizons with an S on the end, dot com. Uh, you can just Google Joseph Pine and you'll find me all over the place, but you'll be able to find our website easy that way. Uh, I do you know, recommend that, that people read The Experience Economy, as you already talked about. It's Of all those books you mentioned, that's the number one uh, that explains really what's going on in the world today and can point them in the direction for thriving in, in today's uh, experience economy. Brilliant, Joe. I, I thought a lovely way to finish would be, and I read this in your book and it reminded me, my, my mother used to say to me when I was younger that what children need is their parents' presence, not presence. So they didn't need gifts. They needed <laughs> actually their presence. And it reminded, when I read this in the book, I read the gift that your daughter Rebecca gave you. And I thought it'd be a nice way to finish <laughs> off. That was such a long time ago too. You know, she was still in, in uh, I think in elementary school when she did that. But yeah, for my birthday one year, she gave me this little, uh, little, little tiny plaque that I have up. I can see it right now up on my bookshelf uh, there. And it says the best things in life are not things. And that's the way to think about the experience economy. Joseph Pine, the second co-author of the experience economy, internationally acclaimed author, speaker, and management advisor. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Aiden. It was a pleasure. 